Hello and welcome to another episode of the Our Foundations podcast. My name is Joshua and today's episode will be the second elaboration on the second part of the Vin Armani Dim Age interview. So again, the disclaimer as I have been giving, if you are not up to date on this series, go back to episode 111. That is the first part of the interview and then go through the first elaborations then the second part of the interview, then the first elaboration, and then you'll get to where we are. Are today. So that is where we are today. Now, originally, I was going to pick up where I left off roughly halfway through this section of the interview where I started talking about different technocracy illusions and things of this nature. I'm actually not going to do that. That would take up easily an entire episode. And I've actually already done that. So if that's something that you are interested in, then go back to episode 98 and episode 99. In those two, I laid out the basically the whole thing, basically everything I laid out in the interview, but a little more in depth. I laid out one example in episode 98 and another one in episode 99. So if you are interested in that and different aspects of technocracy, whether it be the 1984 Machiavellian Panopticon version, or whether it be Plato's Brave New Foundation version, you can check those out and get into that. So Instead, for this episode, and this will be good, I think, for most of us, I think we would really like to continue on with the interview and delve into these topics that have not been covered previously. And so with that, the plan will be to pick up right after that aspect of technocracy and get into rhizomatic versus arborescent ways of thinking, in a sense, and talk about that a little bit, get into powers and principalities. I'll touch on a difference between a religious versus a secular view of these things. I'll talk a little bit about masks that got brought up by Vin. I want to make some clarifications there and explanations and examples, and then wrap up with some really cool symbolism with the tree, since that was brought up there at the end and Vin really got attached to that idea. And I think that's a really good one to draw out a little more as well. So that's the game plan for this episode. And in doing it this way, I will be able to get back to the third part of the Vin Armani interview next week for the next episode. And that will be the plan. I'll get to stick with just two elaborations in between like I did the first time. So that is what's going on. Now, before I continue, I want to just make a brief note that there are a few more patrons that signed up and I want to give them a shout out and say thank you very much. Thank you. I'm not sure where I left off last time. I think I mentioned Connor. So either way, thank you, Connor. Thank you, Joshua and Mick Bird and Ryan and Mr. Ludhart. Thank you all. I greatly appreciate that. They all signed up uh, since, I guess, the last recording. Some of them signed up just before I released the previous episode, but I'd already recorded it, so they didn't get included on there. So I just want to make sure I highlight that and say thank you very much for your financial support. I greatly appreciate that. I actually have quite a few books that are on my list to purchase for research for related topics, such as Jonathan Paggio's Brothers book, which was actually recently recommended to me on Twitter, and I ran across it in some of my research binging on Jonathan Paggio's material as well. And I've got a lot of other similar titles that I want to get and build up my library, gain some more research in these specific areas. And so that is very helpful to actually have the funds to be able to do so. Now, the first thing that I want to talk about is 
is the arborescent versus rhizomatic way of thinking. Now, I mentioned this came from Deleuze. Deleuze is a modern philosopher. I also have mentioned that before, but just as a refresher, the idea of an arborescent way of thinking is if you look at a tree, it's picturing the top half of a tree that is the trunk and the branches and the leaves, and they all have specific things that they do. It's easy to see. It has a specific shape. They all have their specific functions. It's this hierarchical, structured, more materialistic view. That is one way to look at things and to structure things. And then you also have the rhizomatic approach. That would be looking at the root systems. And although we looked at all of that as one tree separated into two parts in the Venarmani interview, um, in this example, I want to just separate this out into two totally different things. Let's say some sort of plant that propagates via roots, via their root systems and sending up shoots. There are many different plants that do this. Typically, not all trees necessarily do this, but there are plenty that do. And so if you think of a root system that operates this way, then all the networking is going on under the soil. And these roots are spreading out kind of randomly in different directions. They are seeking nutrients and water. Some go deep, some go out, some are thin, some are thick. And sometimes they get cut off from their source. But then they just keep growing and end up growing into a separate entity, a separate tree, a separate bush, a separate plant. And they can send shoots up because they also need the sunlight. So they'll send up a shoot and that'll have leaves. And so you'll have a plant on the top as well. But the main structure is under the ground. And not only can these separate and form new plants and different plants, they can also join together. So if one comes in contact with another, then these rhizomes and these roots can grow together and become one organism. A good example of this would be Pando, that is also known as the Trembling Giant. It's a colony of individual male quaking aspen trees, and these are located in Fish Lake in the United States, and this is a forest of trees that covers roughly 43 over 43 hectares, which would be about 108 acres. So this is a very large forest. And this entire forest, all of the trees in there are thought to be one single organism. There, There is just one giant root system. And basically these trees are just separate shoots on this one single rhizomatic system, this one single organism. But the core of this organism, again, is in the rhizomatic sphere. It's in the root system. The root system, in a sense, is the consciousness of the organism, if you want to put it into those types of words. It's not the trees, it's the roots. And so, again, that's a more rhizomatic way of thinking. But rhizomatic thinking, again, incorporates all of these ideas of sending up these shoots. And these shoots might come up in random ways. Some may be tall, some may be short, some may pop up near water, some may pop up near an open area, and some systems might hardly send up any shoots, some might send up a lot. There's kind of no telling how this will go. It can go in many different directions. Again, it can separate from itself, it can join together with something else, it can send up these shoots to do what it needs, it communicates with itself in this 
rhizomatic system, this network underground. This is rhizomatic thinking. So that's how I'm trying to frame it here. Now, for an example, Vin mentioned the blind men describing an elephant parable. And basically, the idea is that there is an elephant in the room and a group of blind men are trying to determine what this animal is. And each one of them, you know, obviously they're blind, so they can't see, so they go to touch. And each one of them touches a different part of the elephant. One touches the trunk, and they think it's something like a snake. One touches the leg, and it's as solid as a tree trunk. And, you know, they touch different parts, they get different ideas, and the ideas of what kind of animal it is are totally different depending on which blind man is touching it, because it depends on the part that they are touching. Now, looking at that story, it is very interesting to incorporate that with some of the things I discussed when I talked about using language and naming things and how that gives you power over them and talking about naming the Church of Woke and what that looks like and how that can help someone. Applying these two things, mixing them together, there's a very interesting correlation with this specific parallel because there is a version of this that was written as a children's book by Carol Quigley's wife. Now, if you're not familiar with this podcast or Carol Quigley in general from other sources, Carol Quigley was the one that wrote the book Tragedy and Hope, A History of the World in Our Time, and he is the one that really went into detail and laid out the history of and the description of and all the players involved in the Rhodes Roundtable groups mostly and other related things, getting into the Rockefellers and J.P. Morgan and the creation of the Federal Reserve and just all of these things related to what we would think of as conspiracy. But he was actually given access to their archives and was a noted historian. He is actually mentioned by Bill Clinton, the president, ex-president of the United States, as being his key mentor in college. He was a professor and was very well respected. And so he came out with this book. He looked at their histories. He wrote it all out and wrote a history of it and then felt like there's no reason why people shouldn't know this stuff. And it was written in a very academic format. So it's not like the average person was going to pick this up and read it. It's pretty dry. I actually do have a copy and I have not made it all the way through it because of that mainly. And so he wrote this book and described all these things. And again, all these conspiratorial types of things, but actual history of it, of corruption and conspiracy. And so that's uh, kind of a side note, very relevant though, because his wife she wrote this parable of the blind men describing an elephant and wrote that as a children's book. And the connection here would be that if you look at the elite groups working behind the scenes that Carol Quigley was describing in Tragedy and Hope, you can look at that from either perspective. It can either be looked at from a rhizomatic perspective or what is more commonly done is looking at it from an arborescent perspective. Either way, you are describing the same octopus, and you could be describing the same elephant, but there are different ways of looking at it, and they produce different results. To give you a quote that kind of lays this out in another way, I can quote Hyland, who was the sitting mayor of New York City back in 1922, and in a speech he was giving, he said the following, quote, 
The real menace of our republic is the invisible government, which, like a giant octopus, sprawls its slimy legs over our cities, states, and nation. To depart from mere generalizations, let me say that at the head of this octopus are the Rockefeller Standard Oil interests and a small group of powerful banking houses generally referred to as the international bankers. The little courtier of powerful international bankers virtually run the United States government from for their own selfish purposes. They practically control both parties, write political platforms, make cat's paws of party leaders, use the leading men of private organizations, and resort to every device to place in nomination for high public office only such candidates as will be amenable to the dictates of corrupt big business. These international bankers and Rockefeller Standard Oil interests control the majority of the newspapers and magazines in this country. They use the columns of these papers to club into submission or drive out of office public officials who refuse to do the bidding of the powerful corrupt cliques, which compose the invisible government. It operates under a self-created screen, seizes our executive officers, legislative bodies, schools, courts, newspapers, and every agency created for the public protection. So that would be the end of the quote there, and hopefully you can see some of the parallels to what we are describing as the Church of Woke, and if you are familiar with the conspiracy world, then all of this should sound pretty familiar to you. But he is describing this group of people and interests behind the scenes that are actually truly running the nation and running public perception. Now, again, there are two ways to look at this. And if you were a blind man, uh, I would say like most what we would refer to as normies out there, most normal people that aren't really educated in these various aspects of behind the scenes workings, they might see that there is a corrupt politician and hear a story come out about them. And they might realize that and see that acknowledge that, accept that, and look down on that and condemn that politician for what they did. They might see that JP Morgan, for example, for a recent example, they manipulated gold prices and metal prices, and they got a major fine for that. And that was an aspect of corruption and manipulating markets in order to make a profit. Or when there was the large container ship that was found that was ultimately owned by JP Morgan as well and ended up having a whole bunch of cocaine on it, some people might see that there's something sketchy going on there. That's that's not good. That is corruption. And again, you might see this on many different levels, many different organizations, whether it be an executive of a company or a specific banker or lawyer, or maybe it is a politician, or maybe it is a company as a whole or a hedge fund. They might see these things. People will. And they will see it as one thing. Again, like touching the leg of an elephant or the trunk of the elephant. They'll see the one thing and they'll touch it and they'll feel it. They'll describe it. They'll 
really try to figure out what it is, and they will see what it is. They'll see what that one piece is, in a sense. But if you don't have the eyes to see the entire elephant, you are not going to get a correct representation of what you are actually standing in front of. And so that's where your eyes really need to be opened because that is an elephant there. It is not just a trunk. It's not just a leg. It's not just a tail. It's not just a stomach. It is a giant beast and it truly incorporates all of these different aspects into itself that makes up what it is. So again, if you look at the Church of Woke or if you look at more in the conspiracy realm of the ruling elites behind the scenes that really run things, these things exist and they exist as a conglomeration of all of these different individual parts. And so if you only see the parts, you don't see the thing. And that's what I was getting at in the last episode about naming the church of woke, being able to name that, being able to see that as the thing and not see it for its individual parts. The same thing is true when you get into the conspiracy world and world of corruption and ruling elites and eugenics and technocracy and all that kind of stuff. It all goes together. It's not just one company. It's not just one group. It's not just one family. It all works together. All of these parts and pieces make up a thing. They make up an entity. And that entity can only be identified if you get all the pieces. Now, going back to the arborescent versus rhizomatic approach to looking at things, the arborescent approach is more of the material approach. It's looking at the structure, looking at the hierarchy. Even if you see that, let's say, in the conspiracy realm, that there are these players, there's the J.P. Morgan branch, there's the Rockefeller branch, there's the Clinton branch, maybe there's the Gates branch, there are all of these different branches, the Rothschilds branch, the British Royal Family branch, the Catholic church branch. I hope I don't step on any toes there, but there are plenty of aspects of corruption in history related to the Catholic church. And so there are many times that some of that stuff is brought up in the realm of conspiracy. And so there are all of these different pieces and you can look at what those pieces are. You can maybe try to map a hierarchy onto who answers to who, who is giving the orders, who is ultimately in charge, who is doing the bidding, who is handling the finance, who is handling the military efforts, who is handling the will of the people. A good example of this would be the cities within a city, the kingdoms within kingdoms, the territories of the Vatican, London, City and Washington, D.C. So the Vatican is the head of the church, and that is a separate, independent nation or entity or whatever you want to call it. It's its independent state. It's an independent region within the broader scope of Italy. The same thing for the city of London. It is in the territory of London, but it is a totally separate jurisdiction with its own rules and its own governance. And that is the center of banking for the world. It generally has been, at least in modern history. And then if you look at Washington, D.C., again, it is a separate entity. It is not a state, but it is not under the jurisdiction of another state. It is a separate entity with its own governance, its own rules, its own authorities, and that is the center of the United States war machine. That's your war. So you have God, you have 
money and you have guns and these are the things that rule the world and so you can look at those things and look at the military industrial complex and look at maybe the history of the jesuits and you can also look at the history of the rothschilds and the rockefellers the morgans the Wahlbergs, all of these different groups in the finance area and you can see what they do, how they've influenced history, how they've influenced uh, political leaders, how they've gotten political leaders into their positions, all of these different things. And you can see that from a materialistic view. That's an arborescent view. You see the roles that they play. You see who is really in charge, who's pulling the strings. It's not necessarily the one who's using the force. Oftentimes, it can be the one who is financing the use of that force. And at times, it can be the one who is controlling the will of the people and has their loyalties. Maybe it's the church that has the true power. And depending on the period of history you are looking at, that does rotate around in different ways. And again, that's the arborescent view. But when you look at the rhizomatic view, you are not looking at the general structure of a tree where it has these specific branches and leaves and they all have their parts to play and they all act in a certain way, you can identify them for what they are. That is a leaf. That is a branch. That is a trunk. That is a banking house. That is a politician. That is a document that proves the conspiracy behind XYZ, whatever. It's not that. The rhizomatic approach is looking at the under the surface network that's going on behind the scenes. It is looking at things like ideologies. It's looking at things like motives and ultimate goals. And so it's not necessarily about looking at who are the players on the ground that are carrying these things out. It's what is actually being carried out? What is the goal? What is going on here? How are all of these things connected and why? That would be more of the rhizomatic approach. And so if you're thinking of an elephant, it is what does the trunk do? What do the legs do? It's not just what is it. Obviously, the trunk is a long tube-like member of this animal, and you can see that it wiggles around, you can feel it and you can hold it if you're a blind man trying to figure this out, but you don't know what it does. If you could, say, somehow figure out what it does, maybe you hold your hand on the end of it and you can feel that it's breathing and blowing. And so you feel that, oh, this is how the animal breathes. You feel it as it goes down to get some food or drink some water. And you can see that that is how the animal might get some water for itself. And it can blow that water out. Maybe that's how it washes itself. This is what the trunk does. It's not just looking at the materialistic view of what it is. And so again, if you can see the whole elephant, it's very different to see the rhizomatic view versus the arborescent view. When you see the whole elephant from a materialistic arborescent view, you just see what it is. Oh, it has legs. Oh, it has a trunk. Oh, I see it. It's a large animal. It looks like XYZ, and those are its properties. But if you look at what 
each one of those individual characteristics of the elephant does, what function does it perform? What is motivating the elephant to do the things that it does? Why does it do these things? How does it do these things? Then you understand a lot more about that elephant than just the man that has his eyes open and can look at it from an arborescent perspective. And so that's kind of the difference in these two different ways of thinking between the arborescent and the rhizomatic. And so when you apply that to a governance structure like I was doing with technocracy, hopefully you can now see the differences here where you have an example of a more authoritarian, more materialistic view of governance. That would be the arborescent approach with a set hierarchy. This is nationalism. This is fascism. These types of approaches to governance are very arborescent. And the societies that it produces are fairly arborescent and hierarchical and structured and class-based, these types of things. But when you look at what we're shifting into, into a more rhizomatic society, and you look at how the governance structures, how society is truly being run, truly, the whys, the goals, the things like this, the oughts, as well as the is— if you look at this perspective from a rhizomatic view of what's really going on and how governance is being applied to society and how society is changing, it is getting to more of a rhizomatic manifestation. It's not just the governments that are running the show. It's also the experts. And they are also motivated by the financing behind them. What happens when Bill Gates is the number one donor to the World Health Organization? And I think he was second behind the United States. So maybe he's the second highest donor. But either way, same with the National Institute for Health and all kinds of things. Things. You can go on and on and on, but there are all of these different influences. And going back to that quote that I read from 1922, talking about all these influences behind the scenes, who really runs things? It's the international bankers, it's the financiers. And there was a time when that was true, and there is an aspect of that that is true to this day. But now we are getting into this aspect of the Church of Woke that is actually running things. This is a religion. This is a rhizomatic, immaterial entity that is truly running things behind the scenes. But there is no hierarchy. There is no structure. There is no leader. There is no set text to look at, to understand what it is. You can't look at this from an arborescent perspective. And if you do, you will completely miss out on understanding what's really going on. It's very difficult to analyze from that way of thinking. And so that's why I'm trying to press this point about these two various ways of thinking, whether it be rhizomatic or arborescent. I think that is something that I personally got a lot out of Deleuze even though that's not his kind of main thing that he's known for. But that is something that I think is very helpful when looking at the types of things that Vin and I are discussing here. This also gets us into something like post-humanism or post-modernism. And these things have a lot of similarities here. This is where society is heading again. And so if you look at the elephant, again, from a rhizomatic perspective, you are defining it by what each part does or by what the animal does and not by what it is. You are judging it by more of its ought versus its is kind of a perspective, the immaterial versus the material. If that's the way you look at it, then is the elephant a vehicle? 
because you see that someone is riding it and it's taking a person from point A to point B. Maybe an elephant is a vehicle or maybe you just see it lumbering around in the jungle. Oh, maybe it's just, it's an animal. That's what it is. It's an animal. The elephant is an animal. Or maybe you see it in the context of a circus. Oh, it is a method of entertainment. It's a mode of entertainment. It's something that people watch as a spectacle. That's what this thing is. Or maybe you are seeing it as a tool. Oh, this person is using this thing to pick up logs and to drag things and to haul things. That's what it is. It is some sort of tool. Maybe it is a mix between a vehicle and a tool. Maybe that's what it is because they're riding it and they're pulling things and performing functions and doing work with it. That must be what it is. Or maybe you see it in the context of war and this is a weapon and this is a weapon that is being used to wage war, to kill people, to defend things, to break down barricades. That's what it is. It's a weapon. And so there are many ways to look at the elephant. It could be any of these things. And at any given point in time, from a rhizomatic perspective, it is what it is functioning as. You define it by how it is interacting with the things around it. So that elephant truly is a weapon when it is in the context of warfare. And it truly is a vehicle when someone is riding it. And it really doesn't matter that it's an animal the whole time. That doesn't make a bit of a difference because that's not the way you're looking at it. It's not material. It's not arborescent. When you look at it from this perspective, it's identity changes. Now, that again should clue you in. The beginning of the second part of this last part of the interview that I played with Vin, he talked about um, gender and how this is something that is now looked at as fluid. I mentioned transhumanism. This is moving beyond mere humanity and getting into having the ability to change what humanity is. And when you get into these perspectives, like postmodernism, it's not an absolute truth. It's relative truth. The truth depends on your interpretation, which is different from everybody. And Shakespeare might have meant one thing, but you can get something totally different out of it. Shakespeare has many interpretations, and it depends on who you are and how you look at it. And each are true interpretations. They That is the identity of what Shakespeare is saying in XYZ play. And so from a materialistic view, that doesn't make any sense. Shakespeare wrote this down and he had an idea in his mind and he told us what that idea is. So that's obviously what he meant when he wrote that passage. But a postmodernist would say, well, that doesn't necessarily matter. You know, that's not the way to look at it. Look at it from this perspective where it has this interpretation because this is how it applies to this other situation. And so that is a different way of looking at things. And that's what we're shifting into as a society. Transhumanism is defining what it means to be human rhizomatically, not from an arborescent perspective. It's not that being human is having XYZ characteristics. It's not that being a male means having this one specific body part. Being human is going to become what we want being human to be. It's the ought controlling the is. It is perfecting the is based on the ought that we think the future should make it. And that should make a little bit of sense if you're up to date on all of these episodes. If you're not, you're probably completely lost right now, and I apologize. But the point here is that that is where we are going as a culture, as a society, as 
a technological civilization. All of these things are heading in that direction. And if we understand it, it is a very helpful thing for us in navigating this world. Now, going back again to the parallel of the elephant, finding the elephant, a lot of people will relate this to understanding religion and who God is. And so people will say that there are many different ways to God. There are many different ways to figure out who God is. And all of these different religions are pointing out different aspects of God. And so Hinduism might point out this aspect. Islam points out that aspect. Judaism points out a different one. Christianity points out a different one. And all of these religions are basically like blind men trying to say what the elephant is, but all they have is this one piece, and they can't see the whole thing. And so each religion is describing one aspect, but ultimately they're all talking about the same God. And so from one perspective, I would say that is true in the context of the previous episode that I released where I talked about how there are these core threads, there are these commonalities, they are describing the beginnings of these things come from the same source, let's put it that way, but they are not necessarily describing the same thing. Oftentimes, they are different versions of a story describing something different, and that is where the analogy kind of breaks down because you can't have an elephant that has contradicting characteristics and still be one entity, the elephant. You can't touch one part and it's a liquid, can't touch another part and it's a solid, touch another part and it's a gas, and oh, it's it's an animal, it's all the same thing. Well, no, those are two totally different things. You can't be a solid, a liquid, and a gas and still be one entity, at least as far as we know, given the scientific discoveries we have made so far in our human existence, that is not possible, again, according to what we know. Theoretically, maybe so, but uh, according to science, that is not possible. And so you can't have characteristics that directly contradict each other. So if one religion says that God is loving and forgiving, and another says that God is vengeful and hateful, another says that God created the world and stepped back and did nothing, another says that God is involved in every little thing that happens in the world. One religion says that there are many gods of equal power. One religion says that there are different gods with different powers, and sometimes one overtakes the other, and there's a different most high god at different times. And one says there is only one most high god there only ever was and there only ever will be. These are all contradicting each other. They can't all be true at the same time. And so these blind men, these different religions, they're not describing the same thing. Now, maybe there are common pieces that they all have. And again, I can get behind that. And I've talked about that in the previous episode. But I would personally say my personal opinion is that it is dangerous, very dangerous to say, oh, you know, you can take this path. You can take that path. They all lead to the same place. I would say no, because they're describing totally different things. They're just describing different deities with different characteristics, they are not the same. Now, again, when you go back to the elephant analogy, these are blind men. They only see one part. When you look at religions of the world and me as an individual assessing these different religions, I can see them all. I can find out exactly what the Hindus believe, the Buddhists believe, the Islamists believe, the Muslims believe, as well as the Christians and the, the Jews and the Messianic Jews and all of these different branches and all these different religions I can figure out what they all are. I'm not a blind man. My eyes are open and I can see the whole thing and I can determine. But if I see that 
there is a whole thing, but all the pieces are totally separate, then it's really hard for me to say that's only one thing. Those are separate things. And so that's kind of the scenario that we are in here. So uh, again, I just think it's a little, it's it can be dangerous to apply that analogy or to look at religions and the most high God and how to learn about God in the spiritual realm from all of these different sources. That's a very dangerous thing. Now, I will get into that more in future episodes. Vin and I get into talking about, he starts talking about prayer and the importance of that and getting into the spiritual realm a little more. And so I'll talk a little bit more about that, about paths to God, so to say. We'll get into that in a later episode. But we can get into powers and principalities into the spiritual world. I think that is a very interesting place to go. And that definitely correlates with what we're talking about here. So uh, again, most of what I am doing comparisons to is the Bible. And I have stated this before that I am coming from the perspective that the Bible gives us a look at what is going on behind the scenes. And the next season of this podcast will be looking at early Christianity and comparing that to agorism and modern times. And so I'll be again using this example of Christianity of the Bible. And so just as a heads up, that is the perspective here. Again, there are many different layers, many different things you can get out of that, and I'll try to draw those out as well. But going back to the Bible, so if you want an example of powers and principalities from that perspective, I will read a few passages from Ephesians chapter 6, starting in verse 11. And this subject does come up at some point in the interview with Vin and I talking about the armor of God. And so it goes like this. Quote, use all the armor and weaponry that God provides so that you will be able to stand against the deceptive tactics of the adversary. For we are not struggling against human beings, but against the rulers, authorities, and cosmic powers governing this darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realm. So take up every piece of war equipment that God provides so that when the evil day comes, you will be able to resist, and when the battle is won, you will still be standing. Therefore, stand, have the belt of truth buckled around your waist, put on righteousness for a breastplate, and wear on your feet the readiness that comes from the good news of peace." Always carry the shield of trust with which you will be able to extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. And take the helmet of deliverance along with the sword given by the Spirit, that is, the Word of God, as you pray at all times with all kinds of prayers and requests in the Spirit, vigilantly and persistently for all God's people. And so those are the verses speaking of the armor of God. And you can tell that that is talking about something related to the spiritual realm, powers and principalities, specifically talks about how we are going against rulers, authorities, cosmic powers governing this darkness, spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realm. You know, this is not materialistic. This is not talking about some event that might come up in your life and looking at it just for what it is. This is looking at what's going on behind the scenes, talking about the spiritual realm, the heavenly realm. This is different. And so the other example I'll use is going back to the Old Testament. This is from Daniel chapter chapter 10, starting in verse 9. I heard his voice speaking, and when I heard him speaking, I fell down in a faint with my face to the ground. 
and I'll insert this here. By the way, he's having a vision. Daniel's having a vision, and there is some spiritual being that he sees. So getting back to it, verse 10. Then a hand touched me and raised me, tottering to my hands and knees. He said to me, Daniel, you are a greatly loved man. Now pay attention to the words that I am saying to you and stand upright, for it is to you that I have been sent now. After he had said this to me, I stood up trembling. Then he said to me, don't be afraid, Daniel, because since the first day that you determined to understand and to humble yourself before God, your words have been heard, and I have come because of what you said. The prince of the kingdom of Persia prevented me from coming for 21 days, but Michael, one of the chief princes, came to assist me so that I was no longer needed there with the kings of Persia. So I have come to make you understand what will happen to your people in the time to come, for there is still another vision which will relate to those days. Now, a few things to pull out of that. First of all, just the fact that Daniel is talking about spiritual battles. This is the spiritual realm, and it's actually technically not Daniel talking here. He is recording being spoken to by a spiritual being in a vision that he had. This is not a physical battle between some being named Michael and some being named the Prince of Persia. This is a spiritual battle between these two entities. And this is something that we don't get a whole lot of clarification on. We don't know exactly what that means. But when you look at the part about the Prince of Persia, the Prince of Persia is mentioned first. And then a little later on, there is wording about the kings of Persia. Now, usually a king is above a prince. But in this context, the prince is spoken of as being above the kings, plural, as if there is some spiritual entity, a conscious being that is in charge of everything. And the leaders on this material world the human beings are the ones that are subject to this spiritual entity, the prince of Persia. That's, that's at least the hierarchy that is being laid out here. To pair this verse in Daniel together with the verses about the armor of God, the armor of God is laid out as spiritual defenses, spiritual armor, and this is all defense focus. That is a key point that I'll bring up later, but it is talking again about spiritual warfare, like I mentioned. And the interesting aspects about this is that as we get into a comparison between the kingdom of God and the church of woke, and this isn't the only comparison that you can make. It is something you can draw a lot of stuff out of on many different layers. This is just the focus that I am drawing out here is the contrast between these two. Now, between the two, the kingdom of God and the church of woke, we can see in many examples how they are just opposites. They are complete opposites. Now, when you look at the armor of God, for example, and it lays out how you prepare yourself given the reality that there is a spiritual realm with things going on and influences behind the scenes, how do you deal with that as a material human being? Well, the things mentioned here are things like truth, 
and righteousness and the word of God, whether you relate that to scripture or the logos, depending on how you interpret that, there is peace that is mentioned and faith and salvation. These are the methods that are recommended to us to fight in this spiritual battle. And you will notice that all of the examples are about armor, everything except for the sword. And especially if you interpret the sword, the way it's described here as the word of God as being the logos, then that is not you. That is someone else, something else that you have access to that is apart from you. And that is what is playing the offensive role. And again, I mentioned how the two kingdoms, they mirror each other. They are opposites of each other. They are inversions of each other. And so when you look at this, what does the kingdom of God say? It says that it's all about truth, and there is an absolute truth, and that truth can be found through the Logos and through the Word. Well, what does the Church of Woke say? They say there is no such thing as truth. There is no such thing as absolute truth. It's all relative truth. It depends on your interpretation. It depends on your culture, on your background, on the context of the situation. Truth is relative, whereas according to the kingdom of God, truth is absolute. What about right? Righteousness. Well, uh, hopefully I don't need to explain that the righteousness that is described in the Bible is the exact opposite as what is often portrayed as righteousness from a church of woke perspective. The same is true with the word of God or the logos. The Bible says that there is one source for this, whether it be the logos or the scriptures, there is one. And that is the only way. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. There is one way. And the Church of Woke, what do they say? There are so many different ways that you can achieve enlightenment in various different forms and formats. And so it's the opposite. The kingdom of God is about peace. That is what is mentioned here with the armor of God, whereas in the Church of Woke, it's all about going on the offensive, going on the attack, going after people that are racist, that are fascist, that are going against the mainstream narrative, these crazy conspiracy theorists and anti-vaxxers and all these people. It's not just pointing them out, it's attacking them, it's going after them. That is not a peaceful strategy. And similar to these things when salvation and and faith are mentioned, you can relate those in the same way. And so the point is that this is a spiritual battle between two spiritual kingdoms that is fought in two different ways in this context of dealing with this immaterial reality going on behind the scenes. So it's very interesting. So if you're looking for, well, what does the Bible have to say about this? What did original Christianity have to say about these things? Then this is it. I'm trying to lay that out. Now, when we talk about the spiritual realm and these other entities, these spiritual beings, there are multiple ways of looking at this. Like I've been saying, there are layers here. So if you look at the supernatural way, we can say it doesn't necessarily even have to be religious. It could be secular or religious, but it's still supernatural. Natural. If you look at that perspective, let's call that the spiritual perspective, then you could see that there are conscious beings that exist. Maybe they are in another dimension. Maybe they are an alien species or force. Maybe it is a universal force that surrounds 
everything. There are many different interpretations of explaining this supernatural reality, this other reality that we don't see from a material perspective. And again, I'm laying out the religious perspective of this from a Christian perspective, and I think I don't need to repeat that. But that is the supernatural way, the spiritual way of looking at these things. And so with this, the spiritual perspective says that there are actual conscious beings or consciousnesses, or however you want to describe that, there there are things that have intentions and that have goals and that are acting, they are thinking, they are manipulating people at large scale and at an individual level. And again, whether that be the powers and principalities talked about in the Bible, or whether that be other supernatural forces from a different mystical perspective, this is still what's being described here, that there are supernatural beings that are interacting with the material world. Now, you can also have a different immaterial or mystical view that is not necessarily spiritual or religious. And so this is another layer here. And so from this perspective, you see a framework for perception and understanding of systems. So this would be more similar to the way that Vin was talking about corporations and big tech and the maybe, maybe the city of Athens, although I think that fits into the other category, but talking about these self-sustaining systems as things that do have goals and they do manipulate and interact with the material world, but they are not these material things. They are not even beings. We can call them entities. You could say big tech is an entity, but it's not necessarily a conscious being from the spiritual world. It is a thing that is manifesting in our material world that is not a consciousness. And so that would be the more immaterial or mystical view, but without the spiritual or religious overtones on top of that, without that layer. I should probably add in a side note here because many people get disturbed when you talk about how there is a most high God and there are evil spiritual beings that are causing damage and pain in the real world. This doesn't look too good for that most high God. Is that an evil God? Is that a God that doesn't care? What is going on here? And I'll just briefly say that from the biblical perspective, at least, God is sovereign over all things, but he has delegated and allowed other powers and principalities to have authority over different territories and over different aspects of the material world. You even have this name, the prince of this world, as a reference to the adversary. That is not the Most High God, and that is not Jesus, the Messiah. That is a different spiritual entity, one that we would think of as being associated with evil. And yet, God has delegated some authority to this entity. And so, the way this works is that he uses these entities. It's not that he encourages these entities to do bad things. It is that even though there are evil nations and there are evil powers and there are evils that exist in the world, there are bad things that happen. He allows this to happen, and this would go 
back to a free will argument. You can't have free will without actually allowing these types of things. And that's an argument I'm not going to get into right now. But uh, that would be, if you want to go deeper, that would be the rabbit hole to go down. But the point is that God does allow things to happen, and he does delegate some powers and authorities to other powers and principalities, but they are always held accountable in the end. And this is true of the powers and principalities, as well as being true of the humans, the material world that those powers manipulate. So if you look in the Old Testament, you will see that God says that this certain king is his rod, is his staff, or his vessel of wrath, or his servant. But it's talking about a secular ruler, one that we would consider to be more associated with evil than with the Most High God, definitely not one that worships the Most High God of the Old Testament. And yet, God is referring to them as his servant, or as his weapon, or whatever the context is there. And typically, what is going on is that that ruler and that nation end up going to war and taking over another nation or enslaving them or doing something like this. And inherently, there is pain and there is evil involved there. And so it's not that God encourages that nation to do an act that causes pain. It's that because of free will, people will do these things. And because even in the spiritual realm, there is free will. And so there are spiritual beings beings that out of their free will reject God and they rebel in some way. And part of this rebellion is interacting and manipulating people and beings on this world, this material world. And so through all of these things, you have evil that occurs and bad things that happen. And so even though that is allowed, God then uses that to punish the wicked. He uses that to teach the people that are seeking after him. He uses that to give trials and tribulations to harden people, to turn people's hearts, to give them opportunities. How do you become stronger? Well, you go to the gym and you work out your muscles. What is happening there? Your muscles are being broken down. Then they build back stronger, better, faster, you know, that that whole mentality here. And that's what's going on here. That's what the Bible describes over and over again, that as you go through hard times, it brings you closer and closer to God. It refines you like a fire refines metal. That's what's going on here. And so I just want to make sure I clarify that because a lot of people have a hard time with the trials and tribulations, the pains, the evils of this world. And so that would be the perspective, at least within the context of what we're talking about here. So unfortunately, this is not going to be the final elaboration episode before getting back into the next section of the interview, there just ended up being too much. So you will get another elaboration next week, and that will get more into self-sustaining systems and looking at them from a secular point of view, and then also looking at them from a spiritual religious point of view, and how you have these systems, then you have these gods behind them, like how Vin laid out in the interview, talking about corporations and cities and that kind of thing. So I'll get into that a little more. I'll talk about the imagery of building a temple and placing an idol in it and how that correlates with the two kingdoms that we are discussing in this discourse here, and then also get more into the tree analogy and talk about the trees in the Garden of Eden and the biblical narrative and the tree of the Church of Woke and how those qualities from the two symbols there correlate and what that means, what that looks like in the materially manifested 
updated versions of what we deal with and talk more about those things. I'll bring up masks as well, since that came up at the end. And I think that's uh, the big topics, at least. So that will be the next elaboration episode. And then we will get into part three of the Ben Armani interview. And one day this series will be all wrapped up. But that is where we stand right now. So thank you very much for listening and for your support of all kinds. I really do appreciate that. I hope that you're really enjoying this long, drawn out, in-depth series. I know that I personally have enjoyed it. And if someone else was doing this same series, I would be listening to every episode. Also, as a final side note, I've got someone working on redesigning designing the logo for the podcast and updating that and getting that a little more refined and professional. The one that I currently use is one that I just generated myself and I am not a graphic designer. And so although it looks pretty good, at least in my opinion, I'm going to get that updated and actually pay someone to do that. And that is happening right now. So there have been a few patrons that have signed up recently at the $8 a month level. And at that level, you also get a piece of merchandise, a mug, a hat, a shirt, whatever you want. And that will have the logo on it. And so just as a heads up, I am waiting until I get the new logo to finalize the merchandise and get that sent out to you. So you might wait longer than you normally would have. But with that, you'll get the new logo, the updated version, and it should look even better than it would have otherwise. I also had someone asking about sources as well as other platforms for support since Patreon is kicking people off that has views like mine that I express on the show uh, that might be coming down the pike. So right now you can just give with cryptocurrency. That's a route that you can take if you're interested in and they are not going to shut that down. But if you do, make sure that you tell me so I can make sure you get any perks that you want because I do not know if you donated in cryptocurrency if I just have some added to my wallet. I have no clue where that comes from or what the purpose is or anything like that. So let me know if you want to participate that way. And as far as sources are concerned, I was asked about that, about some of the books that I mentioned and some of the other resources I mentioned. I'll make sure I have that somewhere by the time I wrap up this series. I honestly just don't have the time to link every single thing in the show notes for every single episode. I'd love to do that and timestamp everything and go through all that. I just honestly don't have the time for it. But if you have a specific resource that you're interested in or a specific thing that I mentioned that you have questions about, then feel free to just ask me. And I have that. I do have that in my notes. I do have access to that. I can give that to you. But I just, again, don't have the time to list all of that out systematically in the show notes for every episode. But what I will do is at the end of this series, I'll make sure that I put that on the website and or probably and in the show notes for at least the last episode so that you have a place for all of those resources that were mentioned. And I will try to get all of them that were mentioned in this entire series. I will start making a note of all of them and write down the ones I remember that we've covered so far. If I leave any out, let me know at that time. But I will try to get that out there so that if you are interested and you are just listening on the fly, don't have time to jot down a note or you can't remember what a certain book was or a certain person was or a certain podcast was that got mentioned, 
hopefully that will be listed there in the resource list that I will get to by the end of the series. So I think that's it. That wraps up everything. If you're in the Twitter universe, you can find me on there as well at Foundations PC. You can also email me anytime, like I've mentioned. I also do have the website that does have some resources listed. And there are a few other pages that have other things, a little bit of a background about me personally. There, again, are the resources that I have used. There is a section that has an outline for Season 1, Season 2, I think I have that updated for this Dimage series. I'm not positive on that, though, but I've got that. I've got some links for COVID-related things, so as that is coming up, it's not necessarily up-to-date information, but still very relevant. The scientific studies on masks, for example, and things like that, some of the statistics and that kind of thing. So if you're interested in those types of things, see the website. That's a resource for you as well. Thank you again for listening and being a part of this podcast. I'm out of here. Peace. This has been another episode of Our Foundation's podcast. Thank you for listening. Goodbye. Yeah. Thank you. Goodbye.